So this summer at Homestead, we have been working through the book of Acts. We have been studying uh, this book of the Bible and kind of going through um, what it says. It was uh, written by Luke. And it's kind of the rest of the story. The Gospels tell us about the life of Jesus, and then Acts takes us on to the beginnings of the church. And I have loved learning about the beginnings of the church. So I, I'm kind of a history buff. Anybody here like, like history and learning about? Yes, okay. So I'm not the only one. I love learning about how things started. I love learning the stories behind things. Um, I, I just started a job a few weeks ago um, working at North Central University in downtown Minneapolis. And the college was started in 1930. And I needed some things to decorate my office. And so the first thing I did was we have this, this library that is an old, old building. It looks like an old mansion. And I climbed up into the attic of the library. I got like the secret keys and went up and started digging through old, um, closets trying to find artwork for my office and I started finding all of these old documents from when it was North Central Bible Institute was started and it was started by a pastor and his wife and um, finding all the old beginnings and and now you know it's this big institution that has all these programs and a huge huge amount of employees but I was finding pictures of just a handful of people in a classroom and the beginnings of it it just inspired me because when you sometimes when you see the whole big thing you it, you can just think well it's just it's always been big. It's always been established. It's always been around. And when you take the time to kind of look back at how it began with just a handful of people, there's something really special about that. Those people that had the faith and were listening to the voice of God to, to believe and to see something that didn't exist yet. And then we're able to walk it out. And that's what the book of Acts is. This is the beginning of the church. This church, this group of people that are meeting here today, we are one of millions of churches that are meeting today around the world. All around the world. And millions and millions and millions of people have become a part of this church and found Jesus Christ. And we can go back to the book of Acts and see those handful of people that it started with the faith that they had to begin it, the steps that they took when they started establishing this church. And so I have loved this series. And today we are going to look at Acts chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. There's some black hardcover Bibles in the pews if you want to follow along. But Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to look today. And this is a, a chapter in the Bible that's going to tell us a little bit about how the church began to grow. We're going to see some infrastructure begin to develop in the church in Acts 15. We're going to see the leaders in the church beginning to shape some of the organization of the church, how they start to make some decisions concerning the body. And we're going to watch how they make these decisions, and it's going to give us insight and how we can make some decisions in regards to our faith and how we live our life as followers of Christ. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start reading. Jesus, I thank you that before time began, your plan of salvation was to use the body of Christ, the church, that we are your bride, we are your hands and feet on this earth, and we thank you, Lord. Our lives have been changed because of this great plan. And so today, we just ask that you would teach us. Holy Spirit, illuminate your word. Show us what we need to learn today. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read the whole chapter. I know it's long, but I'm going to tell you the story, and then we're going to unpack it, okay? So Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. This is the council at Jerusalem. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. 
Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything that God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised as required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. He said, brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told them about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they were finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time that God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversation, conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. For as it is written, afterwards I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken who made these things known so long ago. And so it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, and from eating the meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations." Then the apostles and elders, together with the whole church in Jerusalem, chose delegates, and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church's leaders, Judas and Silas. This is the letter that they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we have decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and for sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. The messengers went at once to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of all the believers, and they delivered the letter. 
And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. Then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. They stayed for a while, and then the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with a blessing of peace. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, and they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. So here is this incredible story right in the middle of Acts. So let's just unpack that a little bit. So historically, the Jewish people were considered God's people. When you read in the Old Testament and you read about God's people, the children of Israel, Abraham's descendants, those are the Jewish people. They were God's chosen, and they had traditions and rituals and rules that they followed. That's how they practiced their faith. That's how they had always practiced their faith. And then Jesus came, and he made it very clear that he had come to save all people. So this small little little Jewish nation that they always thought that they were the only ones, God, Jesus then widened the net. And he said the gospel is for all people, not just one, not just two, not just one group of people, but for all people. And Jeff has shared about that a little bit. And so as the disciples were sharing the message of Jesus, many people were starting to become believers. They were coming to faith, including Gentiles, people who were not a part of the Jewish history. And so God had led leaders of the church, including Paul and Peter, to share the message to the Gentiles. And when they had, the Holy Spirit had fallen on them. They had received Christ. They had been baptized in the church, just like Jewish believers had been. So then all of these new leaders of the church, these Jewish leaders, were trying to figure out how to include these non-Jewish people into their very Jewish-based faith. So do you see the conflict? Do you see the problem? There is this Jewish tradition, and now we have non-Jewish people becoming converts. And they're trying to figure out, well, what does this look like now? Because in the Old Testament, the Jewish people at this time were following 613 rules and regulations. 613 of them, okay, that were listed in the Torah that they needed to observe. There were 248 positive commandments, meaning you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to celebrate this, you need to do this, you need to do this. So 248 positive commands, and then 365 negative commands, things that you could not do. 365. Now, I try and imagine myself every morning getting up with my list of 613 and wonder how long it would take me before I mess that up, because that is a lot of things to remember. So not only are there 613 commands that they followed, but the rabbis over the years would add to the list because they wanted to help people for, to not break those commandments. And so they would set up extra rules called the rabbinic rules, okay? So for instance, the Torah commanded them not to work on the Sabbath. So the rabbis added the rule that on the Sabbath you're not allowed to pick up a pencil because it might lead you to then want to work on something. So you're not supposed to work, but we're going to back it up even more. They called them fence rules. They were rules that then kept you from even getting closer to the line of breaking rules. So there are hundreds of those rules on top of the 613. So some leaders show up in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas are, and they begin to start talking to these new Gentile converts, people who did not grow up in the Jewish faith, and they're saying, you have to start following all these rules. You need to start learning all these rules. And particularly, they were telling them that they needed to be circumcised. Now, they went as far as to say, you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. So you can imagine this is a little bit of a barrier. 
This is a little bit problematic. I mean, can you imagine if you started coming to Homestead and we said, come on in. We want you to be a part of our church. And then as you get in a little bit, we're like, and now you have to do a very painful surgical procedure if you want to be a part of our church. I mean, I feel like half of you, especially all the men, you're like, bye. That was nice. Thank you very much. So this was problematic. So can you imagine where these believe, these Gentile converts are going, well, I believe in all this, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Is, I didn't know that that was part of the equation. And Paul and Barnabas were like, no, 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 no. This, this, they vehemently disagreed with these men. They were saying, no, 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 this is not the way it is. You're saved by the grace of Jesus. What we told you is true. You don't have to follow all these rules and regulations. But there was this conflict in the church because there were leaders that said, no, they need to start following all our rules over here. So this was the conflict. So eventually, Paul and Barnabas say, we're going to go to Jerusalem, which is, remember, where the church started. They had spread out from there. We're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to meet with the apostles and the elders of the church, and we're going to decide. We're going to get a statement made as to what is we going to require of these Gentile believers. So this is what we are seeing here. And if you looked at the heading of Acts 15 when you read it, it says the council at Jerusalem. This is the very first church council in the Christian church. There have been hundreds since then, but that was what, church councils are where they come. They decide on doctrine. They decide on discipline. And so this was the first church council. And so at this council, the question that they needed to answer was what are we going to require of these Gentile converts? What are we asking of them? What are we going to require that they do? The Jewish converts, they were already circumcised. They were already obeying the law. So the question was, what would we ask of these non-Jewish believers? If they're going to become a part of our church, what are we going to ask of them? So we see the leaders of the church weighing in. It says that Peter stood up and he gave his opinion. And then Paul and Barnabas, they stood up and they talked about their experience. And finally, James stood up and addressed the group. Now, James was the head of the church. The book of James was written by him. He was also the brother of Jesus. Maybe you didn't know Jesus had a brother, but he did, and his name was James. And James was the head of the church, and so he was the one who made the final decision. So James stands up, and he addresses the group. And he quotes an Old Testament passage from the book of Amos that says that the light is coming to us, but also will be to the Gentiles. So that is what he began to say. Hey, you know what? I know the Old Testament talked a lot about the Jewish people being God's chosen, but there in that Old Testament is a glimpse of that Jesus was going to widen that net. And so he made a decision. He made a judgment. And we see it in Acts chapter 15, 19 through 20. That's going to be up on the screen. And this is what James decides. He said, so it's my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. So they draft a letter send some delegates back to Antioch, and they go and they tell the Gentile believers, this is what we decided. No more discussion. This is what has been decided. And verse 31 says there was great joy, probably especially from the men folk. We're like, yay, no circumcision. We're excited about this. And so then the delegates stayed, and they began to encourage the believers. So that is the story of the Council of Jerusalem. That's a little bit of church history for us today. So the rest of our time together, if you can keep your fans going and stay with me, I know it's hot. I want to talk about some of the practical things that we can learn from this story. And I'm calling my message today, where's my list? Where's my list? Because the thing that they were stumbling with here, I think is something that we can stumble with as believers, right? 
these believers were stumbling over what it means to follow Christ. What it means. What do we do? How do we behave, right? These Jewish believers, they were used to having a list of rules to follow, and they were wanting their new list. Okay, we know in, in, in the Hebrew tradition all of the things we have to do. So now that we have this new faith, this Christianity, can somebody tell us where's the list? Where's the list of the things that we have to do? And more importantly, they were wanting a list to give other people, right? I don't think they were as concerned about themselves, but they wanted the list that they could then say to other people, okay, now if you want to be one of us, here's what you're going to have to do. Here's what you're going to have to follow. And so they were wanting, they were thinking, how will we know what we're supposed to do without a list, right? Maybe you come from a religious tradition that had a lot of lists, Maybe you came from a very strict liturgical background and there were ceremonies and things that you had to do and you had to go to confession and you had to do this and you had to do that and there was a very strict list of things that you had to do. Or maybe you weren't from a liturgical background. Maybe you were from just a very traditional background and there was this undercurrent list. Maybe it was not something that was said outright, but it was this whole thing of this is what we do, this is what we don't do. And you know how we learn those kind of lists? By how we treat other people or mistreat other people. We watch people be judgmental. We watch them give people the cold shoulder because we don't do that here. And it was very passive-aggressive, some of those lists. Or maybe you have no religious background at all, and then you discover Jesus in the Bible, and it says, God has come to set you free. And then someone hands you a list, and you think, okay, and you start trying to follow that list, and pretty soon you go, I can't do this. I can't do this. I, by, by 10 o'clock this morning, I, I, I already failed in so many areas. So we see in the Council of Jerusalem these godly leaders grappling with this tension about a list. And we have to navigate that same tension today as followers of Christ. So here is the truth. When you come to faith in Christ Jesus, you are free. He sets you free. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. When you confess that you need God in your life, and I loved how Jeff put it when he talked about Paul, that he humbled himself and he just said, I can't do this. I need a Savior. When you confess your need of God and determine you're going to live a life dedicated to Jesus, you are saved. You don't earn it by the things that you do. You can never be good enough. Jesus paid the price for our sins, and salvation is given to us as a gift. It's never earned by something that we do. But the question says, what happens next? Once you receive that gift of salvation, what happens next? After you become a follower of Christ, what changes in your life? Do you go back to living just the way you did before? Everything is just, well, I'm just going to go, okay, well, that was a neat experience. Now I just go back to my old life the way it was. Or do you change everything? Do you get rid of all your friends and add the 613 things to your list? What do we do? How do we walk this thing out? The truth is, is this. When you give your life to God and you become a follower of Christ, who you are begins to change. He gets in there and he starts working on us. But he works from the inside out. That is why list Christianity does not work. Because God works in us from the inside out. Our hearts become devoted to him. We love God and the Holy Spirit in you begins to want to do the things that are pleasing to God. So you might, your heart might become devoted to God and then all of a sudden one day you're like, you know what? I like to go to church. 
hey, family, let's go to church. And everyone's kind of like, whoa. And you're thinking, I used to never like to go to church. That was, ne- I mean, this is a boat day. Are you kidding me? Going to church. And yet there's something inside of you that goes, I want to be there. And that might be a new thing for you. That is the Holy Spirit working in you and beginning to change your desires. Now, yes, there is a discipline involved in following through because Jesus is not going to drag you into these doors. You have to get up and come. But there's something as our hearts become more devoted to Christ, things begin to change. You'll start to care about the things that God cares about because the Holy Spirit in you begins to change what is inside of you. Because God cares about those in need, you might find yourself beginning to care about those in need. And yes, there will be things that you used to do that you begin to have this strange feeling in your spirit that you should not do that thing anymore. That is how the Holy Spirit works in us. You're going to have a feeling in your gut that tells you, don't do that anymore. That's not good for you. That's not pleasing to God. Something in you will begin to tell you that. Or maybe you'll read something in your Bible, and suddenly it's like someone just lit it up on the page, and you'll go, you know what? I need to stop that. That's something, I, that doesn't please the heart of God. That doesn't, that doesn't make me closer to God. That keeps me further from God. And you're going to change behavior. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, changing us, shaping us, making us more like Jesus. This is the work of Christ in us. He begins to write a list in our hearts. He writes a list in our hearts that is specific to us and to the things that need to be worked out in us. Philippians 2, 12, and 13 tells us this. It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I love that scripture. God is working in you to will, to give you the want to, to want to do what's right, and then to follow through with it to make the right choices. God is working out salvation in you. He is changing you slowly from the inside out. God writes our list on our hearts. And the truth is, my list is going to look way different than your list. Now, there are fundamental scriptural things that we will all have on our list, and we're going to talk about more about that in a minute. But the reason that we trust the Holy Spirit with writing our list, instead of when you start coming to church, I hand it to you, is because the work of Christ in me is going to be different than the work of Christ in you. God knows us, and he knows the things that we need to work on. So, for example, Dennis, wave back there. There's Dennis, our buddy. So Dennis shared his testimony a few weeks ago about how God radically saved him. And one of the things that Dennis shared about was before he came to Christ, how he was a tough guy and he ran with this like crazy motorcycle gang and he would beat people up and he was just a tough guy. He is like the biggest teddy bear now for those of you that don't know Dennis. But before Christ, this was what he was. And he had a huge temper and he loved to get into fights and he ran with this motorcycle gang. So when Dennis found Christ... I'm sure that in the process of Dennis's discipleship, there was a moment when the Holy Spirit said to Dennis, Dennis, you're not a dentist? You're not a dentist? At least I don't think so. I don't know that I'd want you working on my teeth. Dennis, I'm sure there was a moment that the Holy Spirit said to Dennis, Dennis, you can't go to those biker clubs anymore. Dennis, you can't hang around with those guys right now. You, you got to learn a little bit more. Now, the character of Christ has grown in him now. I don't think it would affect him at all. He is strong enough in his faith. But I'm sure early on in that process, when he was still learning how to walk out of that lifestyle, that there was a moment that the Holy Spirit would said, you do not need to go there, Dennis. Can I tell you the truth? 
that has never been on my list. Unless something drastically changes in my life, I don't think I'm going to wake up one morning and the Holy Spirit is going to say, Christy, you need to stay away from biker gangs. You can't, and I would be like, no, why, Lord, why? No, it's never going to be on my list. Never. It's, I mean, can you imagine if I walked in, hey, everybody, can't we be friends? I don't think that would go very well. It's never going to be on my list. But it was an important part of his discipleship. Can you see why we have to trust the Holy Spirit to write the list in our hearts? We're individuals. And so the work of the Holy Spirit in us is an individual work. And we have to be responsible to listen to the Holy Spirit in us. I can't do it for you, and you can't do it for me. Now, we can come alongside of each other and help, but you have to be listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. I consistently pray, God, if there's something in me, in my actions, in my attitudes, in my thought patterns that's keeping me from growing in my faith, you can have it. Just show me. Tell me what it is. And do you know there have been seasons in my life where God has put his finger on something in my life that I never in a million years would have thought was hurting me? And God would say, I want you to give that up. And I would think, that? That's not a big deal. And God would say, are you going to trust me? Are you going to obey me? And as I followed through with that, all of a sudden it's like the blinders fell off and I thought, oh my goodness, that thing was keeping a bad attitude in my heart. That thing was keeping me from reconciling a relationship. Whatever it might be, there have been times that the Holy Spirit, I would have never seen it on my own. But when I trust him, he will guide me into that. And then there have been times in the same way where I have heard of people like, well, we don't do this and we don't do this and we don't do this. And I've stopped and said, God, is this, is this something I need to adhere to? And there have been times that God says, this is not for you. You can go to a biker gang if you want, Christy. That's fine. It's, that is how the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. We allow God to create our lists. And our lists need to be informed by the Holy Spirit and by Scripture. It's that feeling in your gut that when you sense, I don't know if I should do that. That's the Holy Spirit talking to you. He is leading and he's guiding you. And when you read the Bible and you see something and you go, oh, okay, wait a minute. This says that I shouldn't gossip. Okay. All right. So then I'm going to put that into practice in my life. The Holy Spirit works in us. So knowing that that's our framework, I want to close today by looking at those last three things that were on the list. When they picked at the Council of Jerusalem and told the Gentile believers what they should follow, I want to look at that as a framework for us as to where we can start on our list. Because I find it fascinating that when the Council of Jerusalem met and they were looking at all, um, all of the things that were required, I love that they didn't say, well, you have to follow 613 commandments. They didn't go there. But you know what? They also didn't say, it's all fine. Do whatever you want. They had three things. They put three things on a list and said, these are the most important things. Let me read it to you again in Acts 15, 28 and 29. James wrote this in the letter. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. So you must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. I, I love that last sentence so much. What great leaders, right? They trusted the work. It's like, if you do this, you'll do well. You'll be fine. They trusted that the Holy Spirit was able to continue the work. They didn't load them down with a whole bunch of stuff, but they gave them a starting point. So I want to look at those things. Now, those things don't mean anything to us today, right? Um, excuse me, can you not eat food offered to idols? I don't know what that means. So let me tell you contextually what that means, and that can give you a starting point as you are looking at your own list. 
So, the first thing was to abstain from food offered to idols, okay? So, Matthew Henry said in his commentary, the opinion of James was that the Gentile converts ought not to be troubled about Jewish rites, but that they should abstain from meats offered to idols so that they might show their hatred of idolatry. So what it meant to this audience was the Gentiles in general served pagan gods. They would go to the temple and they would sacrifice animals to these gods and then they would take it home and they would eat it. And so they would go to the shrines and they would eat the meat. So the main point of adding this practice to the list was to help the Gentile Christians understand that they could not practice idolatry and follow Jesus at the same time. So these people, they were used to polyism, polytheism. They were used to having multiple gods. They served a lot of things. This, so this was a fundamental thing they needed to learn. Hey, now you serve Jesus. You can't, you can't sacrifice to these idols anymore, right? The requirement wasn't about the meat. The requirement was about the idol. And something that was super common in, the, in their culture, James had the wisdom to say, okay, this one, this is super important. Don't eat the meat sacrificed to idols because this is going to help you walk away from this practice of idolatry that has been so common in your life. This is something that you have to walk away from because this is fundamental to God. He says, serve no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. So this is the thing that they gave. So for you and I today, when we're letting the Holy Spirit guide our lives and write our list, we can start with this. Is there anything that has become an idol in my life? You can ask the Holy Spirit to show you that. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's something you can't or won't give up. Maybe there is something that is controlling you, and you feel like it has power over you. Maybe there's something you're worshiping more than God, something you're more devoted to than God. The Holy Spirit might ask you to give something up because that practice, that thing that you're doing, is keeping your heart tethered to that idolatry. So abstaining from food offered to idols, it's a reminder to us that we cannot worship anything but God. So that was the first thing they said. The second thing they said was don't consume blood or meat from strangled animals. Again, that doesn't mean anything to me at all. But this is what it would meant to them. The practice of not consuming blood or animals that had been strangled was a strict part of the Old Testament Jewish law. And it was something that the Jewish believers took incredibly seriously. This was a big deal to the Jewish people. Now remember, the Gentiles over here, they did not care about that. That was not a bit, they liked their steaks rare. They had no problem if there was still blood in their meat. But it was a big deal to the Jewish believers. And so this was something that James put in there because he said, this is about unity within the church. Because if we have these people over here that this is a big deal for, and we have these people over here that it's not a big deal for, and we want them to be one body united, and we ever want to have a church potluck that doesn't turn into a bloodbath because everyone is like, how could you possibly bring that? If we ever want to have unity, what we're going to do is we're going to say, hey, in deference to your brothers over here, can you not do this anymore? Because this is going to help us unite together as the church. I love this so much. They were asking the Gentiles to abstain from meat with blood, and they essentially were saying, this is a big deal to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So what can we learn from this? We need to consider our brothers and sisters when we are looking at our list. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, and 24 says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. 
I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Number two on this list is telling us, consider your brothers and sisters. Even though something might not be on your list, it might be on our brother or sister's list. And we should do everything in our power to support them in honoring God with whatever he is asking of them. For an example, I could say to Brooke, hey, Brooke, you want to go to a movie? You want to see this movie? And Brooke could say to me, you know what? I just, God has kind of been challenging me about the things that I'm watching. I don't know if I, I don't know if I should see that movie. And I, have, I can do one of two things. I can say, oh, pff, that's no big deal. I'm sure it's fine. Let's go. It's no big deal. I'm sure it's fine. Or I can say, oh, okay, you know what? Let's come up with something else. And hey, I'm super proud of you for listening to the Holy Spirit in your life. Okay, that's just a really simple example of what <laughs> don't eat strangled animals means, okay? But that's a simple example of are we, I, I, I might not have that on my list. That movie might not be something that would bother me. But for her, the Holy Spirit has said, no, 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 this is not good for you. And if I'm going to love and support my sister, then I am going to come beside her and say, great, how can I help you in that? How can I support you in that? That is what this means. James is asking them to abstain from food with blood and still in it as a symbol of their commitment to unity within the church. So there's number one, number two, and number three, we're almost done, is to avoid sexual immorality. Guess what? This one's on everybody's list. We all get this one. And why? God asks each of us to avoid sexual sin. This is fundamental in Scripture. And why is that? Well, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 tells us this. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. You know why this gets put on everybody's list? Because sexual sin hurts you. Sexual sin hurts you. God is not trying to ruin anybody's fun. God loves you more than you could ever know, and he knows that sexual sin will always, always hurt you. It'll hurt you emotionally. It'll hurt you spiritually. It'll hurt you physically, and it will derail your life in a million different ways. So for all of us, we can know that God wants us to avoid sexual sin. So within that framework, the Holy Spirit can speak to you specifically about things in your own life. You can know that that's on your list, but the specifics might be different for each one of us. Are you watching something you shouldn't watch? Are you doing something you shouldn't do? Are you thinking something you should not be thinking? And it's up to us to be wise and put that specific thing on our list and begin asking the Holy Spirit to help us walk that thing out because sexual sin will always hurt you. So today, the question is, what is on your list. What are the things that God is working on in you as you are working out your salvation? Is there something that he's asked you to give up? And you said, no, I'm keeping that. I'm not doing that. Is there something he wants you to start doing? And you know that he's been encouraging you to start us something and you're like, ah, I'll get to it later. What's on your list? You need to begin to hear God's word. You are responsible for the Spirit's work in your own heart. You are responsible for that. Is your heart fully devoted to Jesus? Or are there still things that you say, you can't have this yet? 
Are you mindful of your brothers and sisters and the things that they're struggling with? And are you avoiding sexual sin? The council at Jerusalem made it clear. Let's not make it harder for people to come to faith in Christ. We are saved by grace. We don't earn it. We can never deserve it. He isn't giving you, but let's not, um, let's make sure that we then take the next steps, right? God isn't giving us an unattainable list that we'll never be able to succeed. We have the full grace of Christ, but the work of Christ in us means that he begins to change us from the inside out. So let's commit today to be people who are growing in faith. Let's pray. Jesus, we just start today by thanking you for the gift of salvation. Lord, if it was up to us to earn it, if it was up for, to us to be good enough, there's not any one of us that would ever be able to achieve that. And so we thank you that it is for, by grace we've been saved, a gift of salvation given to each one of us, and we grab onto that, and we are so grateful knowing that it was given freely by you, nothing we could ever earn. But Lord, in response to that gift... Because we're so grateful, because we love you so much, because our hearts are devoted to you, we want to then begin to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to you. And so, Jesus, we give you all of us. There's nothing that we hold back. So, Lord, we just ask if there is anything in us that is keeping us from you, Lord, begin to show us how do we walk this thing out? Is there something in our life that we need to add? Is there something in our life that we need to subtract? God, we can't rely on anybody else to tell us what those things are, but the Holy Spirit and your word will speak specifically to us. You know how to make us like you. You know how to accomplish the work in us. So help us to be good listeners, and then help us to follow through whatever it is you tell us. Thank you for this time. Bless everyone here. I pray for special protection and blessing on all their families. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.